0: This is episode number 39, and I'm Michael Howard, the founder and CEO of Musea. With this episode, I had the pleasure of talking with fine art photographer Mary Beth Meehan up in uh, the Boston, Massachusetts area. Boston. Um, but before I get to our interview with Mary Beth, uh, there's a couple of just really quick news for with Musea I want to um, talk about. Uh, I'm going to keep this really short because the podcast... Uh, is a little longer than normal. It's maybe like an hour 15 or something. so get ready to sit back and enjoy this one. But um, just really quick, I just really want to uh, celebrate the fact that in 2012 we've given enough water or we've given enough money to water.org um, through your print sales that 22 people are going to receive clean water for life. And so that's a huge accomplishment um, in this first year of the Museo store being open. And I'm so proud of you guys and so thankful for your commitment to MUSEA and uh, changing the lives of other people that um, are less fortunate than us. And so uh, give yourself a round of applause, a pat on the back, and just thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, Hopefully in 2013, we can triple or quadruple that number um, and and really start impacting the world in even um, a bigger way. So thank you so much. Obviously, the MUSEA gathering is coming up with New York City, Seattle you know you want to be there, get your tickets, museagathering.com. If you want to switch to the Musea store for your online proofing in 2013, uh, just go to mymusea.com. Uh, if you have questions, email me, michael at com, and I'll be glad to help you in any way uh, to get that thing rolling. So anyway, on to the podcast with Mary Beth. Uh, for this um, episode, we talk about her Cities of Champions a project, primarily, uh, which takes place in her hometown in uh, Brockton, Massachusetts. Uh, we talk a lot about how she gains the trust of the people that she photographs. Um, the, her project's a lot about the culture of, of the city and post-industrial America and, and immigration and just a lot of a lot of issues. Um, and so it's it's a very very powerful work. I think you'll uh, get a lot out of it. And she also did an or when unorthodox thing in terms of exhibiting the work because instead of just doing a gallery exhibit she decided to (coughs) print these really big banners and put them up on the side of the buildings inside of Brockton like downtown Brockton and so that caused uh you know had a really good response but also had some controversial response in a lot of ways as well so we talk a lot about that but uh this is a great conversation Mary Beth is amazing she's so sweet such an amazing photographer. Um, and she can really talk about our work and her thought process, uh, really efficiently. So you're going to get a lot out of this. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Get some coffee, tea, donut or something and uh, enjoy our conversation. So thanks so much for listening as always. Well, Mary Beth, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm excited to talk to you. How are you doing this morning?
1: Hi, Michael. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to having a chat with you.
0: Um, Well, the first thing I always ask everybody is just getting your background. And so I'd just love to know kind of how you got started in photography and how you got to where you are uh, today.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, um, I started... Really, as a journalist, as a photojournalist, studying um, photography, I went to the University of Missouri School of Journalism and studied photography there. And so, um, you know, I started in a process that was really about being in the world and reporting and research and kind of trying to understand the world around me and worked as a journalist for quite a few years um, on newspapers and uh, freelancing and then after having children i started really focusing on doing my own documentary projects and trying to find funding for those and working independently and finding outlets for that work so that's kind of where i am now
0: i don't we actually haven't talked about this but i'm actually from missouri so oh you're kidding so it's funny that you went to the university of missouri because i know that they're really known for their photojournalism program there that's um, right yep yeah, I'm what? from Springfield, Missouri. So. Oh,
1: interesting. You're right. We never, yeah. we never did talk about that, huh? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> well, Missouri was, you know, it was interesting because I knew after college I knew that it, um, I was interested in photography, and for some reason my my mind just um, got stuck on this idea of of working as a journalist uh, um, more than you know. Um, Trying to be an independent artist or that kind of thing, so I just went looking for jur- journalism schools that I could study where I could study photography. And Missouri came up. I had never even really heard of the school, mm. but as soon as I started talking about photography relative to journalism, that that was the place that kept coming up. So that's where I ended up. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's weird. yeah. The program's really pretty high. So the Mizzou Tigers.
1: <laughs> exactly. Isn't that funny?
0: <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, did you also? I was looking on your website. I mean, did you, did you also study English?
1: Well, that's right. So my undergraduate degree was all in liberal arts. So I was an English major at Amherst College, but I also had a concentration in fine arts. So I studied a lot of painting and, um, art history. And, um, and so in those days I was looking at photography. I had sort of discovered photography as a teenager and was always really entranced by it. And in those days, um, Carrie May Weems, I don't know if you know her work, but she was a very very famous photographer who was teaching at Hampshire College and I tried to get into a class of hers and it was so oversubscribed that I couldn't, but I re- so I remember college as being a time of um being really intrigued by photography and trying to get involved with it, but my studies were in um were in English and art, fine art and art history. And then um it was after college that I that I just decided that I was going to try to really make this make photography a life, which was strange because I hadn't done that much photography. I'd taken a few summer courses in Boston, the Art Institute of Boston, and one at Harvard had a uh, has the Visual Environmental Studies Department at Harvard, and they did extension school classes. So I'd done a course there. So um, something was drawing me to the medium, even though I didn't really study it until after I went to, you know, I didn't really study it seriously until graduate school.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Hmm.
1: I know. It's kind of I like know. you fell
0: in love with it before you were even really doing it, which is...
1: Well, I, I did. And, you know, and I'm trying to write something now about that, it was that early. Uh, I'm I'm writing a proposal for something that's asking me about how I got involved. And it's really funny. It was really sort of a visceral, I mean, I remember seeing the Diane Arbus monograph for the first time. I remember I had an uncle in New York who sent me the Bruce Davidson East 100th Street and just being so entranced by that work. And then after, I mean, this is really tough. Off the topic, but after so after I graduated from Amherst, I had a good friend from San Francisco. I went to live in California for a year, and I was waiting tables. And there was a there was a photographer at one of my tables. It was like a coffee shop, and he was a journalist. And I said to him, I started talking to him, and he and he said something to me like, Well, if you're, I said, Well, if I wanted to be a photographer, what would I have to do? And he said, Well, you should just go do it. And I said, I don't know. I feel like I'm the type of person who needs to go and study and immerse myself with other people who know more than I do for a Mm. while. And he said, Well, then you should go to University of Missouri. And it was this weird moment of, Oh, like, okay. And then I just went and did that. I mean, I just went and pursued that, you know. So I think, especially now, working as a teacher. Like, I think back on young people, you know, young people have these instincts for things and they're not quite sure why, but, but they often are very correct, you know, because every- everyone was like, what? You don't take pictures.
2: What do you mean you're going to go? <laughs>
1: you know, like nobody yeah. in my life knew me as that, but I just had this idea that it was something that I that, that I could do and that I really wanted to do. So it's, and that's, that has endured over, you know, I mean, it was, you know, I, I graduated from college 25 years ago. So that, well, not quite 25, 20 three. So anyway, um so it's interesting, isn't it, how yeah. you you have this feeling about a medium, about a craft and then you keep renegotiating it over time, over, you know, your life changes and you have kids and marriage and Jobs and then no jobs and layoffs and things and um, everyone is going through all this now. I mean, I'm, all my friends in journalism now are going through such a tumultuous time. And then my fine artist friends are saying, "How do I make a living at this? Do I teach? Do I'm not I mean? I'm not really selling prints." So, so I think that original um, falling in love with a way that you want to express yourself is is a blessing, but it's also hard to keep it up over over the course of a lifetime, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, especially if you're trying no. to make money at it, it tends to be especially
1: if you have to make uh, money. Yeah, yeah, it's very difficult. Right, I guess if you're independently, you know, if you've got a trust fund or you're independently yeah. wealthy, that's a blessing because then you can pursue things with more freedom. So, yeah. that isn't, you know, that's not my situation, but it, <laughs> it, but it's okay. I mean, there's a certain amount of grit in having to, um, having to find a way to keep going.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: so funny. That. That's funny that we just discovered uh, that. Yeah.
0: yeah, connection. Um, well, I, I kind of uh, discovered you through Flack Photo, which I kind of want to give um a bit of a nod to for everybody listening, just because I don't if they don't if you don't know Flack Photo, you need to go there. Andy Adams does a great job of curating uh, the the website, and that's where I found your stuff, Mary Beth, and mm-hmm. um just really fond of of your City of Champions project. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh, no, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I want to give a nod to Andy Adams, too, because, you know, what a great guy. This is this guy who's sitting in Madison, Wisconsin, just really in love with the craft, in love with this art form, and really trying to make connections for people and trying to celebrate photography and be kind of a clearinghouse for the good work that he sees going on out there. And so, you know, it's people like him that are kind of helping us bridge this moment of this chapter of of um moving to the internet, you know, and, and, um, and, and how can the internet be something that, um, brings us all together and encourages the art of photography. So, um, so anyway, yeah, so it's, it's, it, I just can't, uh, thank Andy enough for, you know, all he's done for me and then so many other photographers who he's really worked hard to, to bring to light to other, to a bigger, to a big audience.
0: Yeah. I need to have him on here sometime. So.
1: Yeah, that would be, be a great idea. <laughs>
0: Um. yeah, let's talk about your City of Champions project uh, Mm -hmm. and just start, I guess, at the beginning and we'll work our way through it. But where did the idea for the project begin, I guess?
1: Well, City of Champions is a project that um, it's based in Brockton, Massachusetts, which is my hometown. So where it began, I mean, you could say it began in the 1800s with my (laughs) Irish great-grandparents arrived in you know arrived in Brockton um I won't bore you with going back that far but um you know so I grew up in this city which was a um at one time a thriving manufacturing city um it was once the center of shoe production for the world legions of western European immigrants came and settled the place and built it up and um when I was growing up there, mostly in the 70s and the 80s, the manufacturing industry was on the decline. I didn't know all that then as a kid, but, um, but there was a really strong sense of pride, both in terms of um, it being a place where working class people could really have, um, have a, rich, a rich life. And it was also a place of great ethnic pride. All, my, all of my friends and I, we all were in touch with our immigrant roots. My, my father's Irish, my mother's Italian. Most of my friends had Greek, um, Portuguese, Lithuanian, um, you know, relative parents and grandparents, and we were all attached to those to those links. And so. I grew up there. Rocky Marciano was from there, the world heavyweight boxer, Marvin Hagler. And so if there was this greedy kind of boxing. That's where City of Champions got its name. It was once called Shoe City. Mm. Um, so it really embraced this this kind of tough, you know, Rocky Marciano was an Italian kid from the from the neighborhood who became this world heavyweight champion. So we were all steeped in that without really realizing it. Then I went to Amherst College, which is a very different kind of environment. And um, suddenly, now I could see a working class place like Brockton from a new lens, you know, from a, from an outsider's lens looking in. And so, Brockton, having been from there, my parents stayed there. They still live there in the house where I lived my whole life. So, it as a as an identity and as kind of um, as kind of a, a You know, a mindset being from, well, I mean, we all sort of maintain the places that we were from Mm -hmm. in our, in our bodies, no matter where we, and in our minds, no matter where we end up. So anyway, having been from Brockton really stuck with me, but I went to college and became a journalist and was working. And during the years since I'd left, the place really declined. So it declined economically, physically, it became more run down and the demographic of the place changed. So when I left in the 80s, it was, um, you know, it was 82% white, but with white flight and the, um, you know, the lowering of the economic standards and the continuation of immigrants, but now immigrants from all over the developing world. So now it's a majority minority city. So I'm, I'm, you know, I wasn't living there anymore. I was, I was uh, working as a journalist in Boston and Providence and all over and, But I was listening to people who were still there talking about the changes. And not only was it, but the the discussion wasn't about economics. It wasn't sort of an objective kind of view of how does a post-manufacturing city change. It was really laden with anger and resentment and regret. And on top of that was a lot of anger and resentment about race. Mm-hmm. So, people would say things like brockton's turned Brockton's gone to hell. it's turned into a third world country." One uncle said, "The blacks have ruined my my city you know i mean the, so, so just the race i mean so to so to be part of that old white Western European history, which is my history, and to hear these old timers really just struggling against the new um it kind of lodged in me like all this sadness was sort of lodged in me about the place and about the stories and then about all this anger. So, so I realized, you know, that, <clears throat> All my life, as a as a, my work as a journalist had been about um, working in poor. A lot of my work had been about working in poor neighborhoods, working in urban environments, trying to rewrite stereotypes, trying to go places where people wouldn't go, and well, there's, you know that that the, there was a preponderance in, of drugs, say, and I would go in and I would try to find the families who were trying to live within that, or trying to trying to redirect people's thoughts about what those places were really about. Um, And so after my, I have two sons, after my second son was born, I realized I had to go to Brockton and use the camera to find out for myself what had happened. So I started photographing in early, mid 2006, I started photographing, just walking the streets. I mean, I hadn't really walked the streets in 20, you know, in 20 years and meeting people and talking to people and figuring out, um, Figuring out what had happened, so I mean those roots of mine in journalism and in trying to do research and understand things from an academic perspective came in really handy as I as I learned about the post the state of the post industrial United States, you know, and, and how those changes have happened. But then also working as a photographer and trying to figure out how to respond visually and how to how to make pictures that reflected both the longing of the past. And also the the reality of the new and then the collision of the two and then how to make pictures that reflected all this, um, this feeling, all this deep, dark, emotional feeling that people were feeling. But then the wonderful kind of the the revelation for me was that, in fact, that these sparkles of hope and regeneration were actually coming from the new immigrants, that those are the people who are going to regenerate the place, despite the disconnection from the between the old and new you know the old and new community groups, so it was really it i mean it was kind of it was it was a kind of a nightmare like I can speak about it very I can speak about it now in a cogent way, but the process was really hard because i didn 't really know what I would find you know I spent a long time. For example, I spent a long time making pictures where everyone just looked sad and depressed. And yeah. <laughs> someone said, you know, I showed and I you know and I have lots of friends, thank God, in the business who are so wonderful and, you know, calling on colleagues to help me edit and just say, What are you seeing here? And they someone at one point said, you know, somebody has to be having fun in this town. Like you can't just keep shellacking every image with this one note of regret, you know, this one note of sadness. And so then once I loosened up, you know, I was I had small children, so I was working one day a week. I would go up there and leave my kids with my parents and then just go out and photograph. And sometimes I I knew where I was going. I had a plan or a date or an appointment with someone. And sometimes I just would walk. Um, And once I loosened up on that mandate of... um, you know, I think we all struggle with is, is this a is this a true exploration or is this really just an effort of, at um, illustrating my own ideas that I've got already? Yeah. Once I loosened up on that and allowed myself to explore, I realized that the place was so complex. And then that you know, and that and that there was so much joy and so much hope and so much contradiction that in every picture, there's you know like. Um, I've got one picture that I that I like a lot of a of a girl holding a little spring bouquet. It's a very simple picture, but just on the most boarded up foreclosure kind of landscape, I saw these kids running down the street. And they'd they'd you know they'd picked the spring flowers from city hall. They'd swiped these flowers. Mm-hmm. But, so here's this young girl with this gorgeous bouquet, and she's wearing this bright blue. Shirt. And to me, it just sort of reverberated about these contradictions, like all this beauty, like these families coming from Haiti, um, from West Africa, from Cape Verde, like really from difficult situations and trying so hard to embroider a new life on this landscape, which, um, you know, if you're coming from Haiti and trying to set up shop in Brockton, it's a pretty relatively safe place to do that, Um which is different than the lens of the old Irishman who remembers when it was perfect and thriving. And so now everybody's got their own perspective about what this landscape is. So yeah. anyway, I don't know if that's, is that making sense what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, no. Yeah. And you're you're starting to touch on different things that I was going to kind of really dive into, which is great. Um, but, let's uh let's see let's back up a little bit and Mm -hmm. kind of as we go through the project we'll kind of touch on some of these i think in more more detail because you're kind of you're hitting them but i want to dig into them a little bit more um when i look at the project obviously like the first thing you know that i start asking is how did you decide who you wanted to photograph and i guess you know some of this is your is this just people you discovered as you're walking the streets or are these people you knew previously or how did you go about picking your subjects, I guess?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, in the beginning, it was very much about, um, you know, meeting the challenge of, of how do you reflect the past? I knew that I wanted to reflect a more, pros- the, the you know, a more prosperous past mm-hmm. because that was what's in the minds of the, of such so much of the population, so I went back to most. In the beginning, most of the people that I photographed were old. Were either my family or mostly old friends of my family or people that I knew growing up. Growing up, um, so you know I, my, my, you know my parents are still there and they're very involved in the community and they have loads of friends and um, that part was really fun, like being able to say. Dad, can you call so and so and see if I can go over? And um, you know, he he. My father goes every morning to this Greek coffee shop. My father's not Greek, but he goes to this coffee shop where everyone speaks Greek. So, can I? <laughs> will you see if I can go see um, see so and so's garden, or will you take me over to? You know, I started with my dad. We we went back to all the churches where he was an altar boy. Like one church where he was an altar boy. Now they've got Haitian mass, you know, on Sunday. So. So sort of revisiting it through through them, through my parents, and through their past, and so that was really fun because now I'm a kid, you know I'm I'm a kid going to these people who who remember me as a kid, yeah. and trying to look at them in a new way. I remember my mother has a friend who's Greek who took care of her her mother who died years and years ago, but it's like it was yesterday. In the apartment, her apartment is like it could be an old immigrant's apartment from the forties, you know, or, or, um, so, so I wanted it. So I photographed that stuff. My, and I was a bridesmaid when I was expecting my older son, I was a bridesmaid in a wedding, if you can believe that. And my mother took me to, I had to go to a special seamstress to make me this dress. So I went to this Italian seamstress and she had this shrine of sort of Rocky Marciano, this little boxing shrine amid all of this old, this, she's an old Italian lady. So I ended up, you know, getting my dress altered and then going and getting the camera and the tripod and photographing that. So, so suddenly i um, I was looking at everything I already kind of knew that I'd known for my whole life I was looking at it in a new way as a way of photographing it. So that was kind of step one was to, was to revisualize what I, the people I already knew Um as a way of photographing. But then I had to meet, then I had to meet the people that I didn't know and everything that had changed. I mean, when I left in the eighties, the Haitian community was just starting to be built up in Brockton. And now it and the Cape Verdean community are the two largest immigrant groups in Brockton. Someone said, my favorite quote is someone said the Haitians and the Cape Verdeans are like the Irish and Italians of the last century. Mm. So, so I had to meet all those people. So then it wasn't about accessing the people that my parents knew but it was about kicking into journalist mode and figuring out okay um where do i how do i do where do i meet these people and so part of that was walking the streets but mostly it was um you know i spent a lot of time in english as a second language class english as a second language classes visiting them hanging around i mean i went for a long time to this one school just week after week, being present, and the people who were open to being photographed would give me their phone numbers and their addresses, and I would go visit them and meet their families. Or, um, you know, some teachers w- would allow me to speak to their students, some wouldn't. Um, so it's all it was all a matter of using those instincts of like, where is this going to work out for me? Who, who, you know, I think in every situation as a journalist, you have to figure out who who's going to be my connector in, who's going to help me. And I think people, you know, people really responded to this idea that someone who'd grown up there, a Native person had come back and wanted to tell the story of the place in a more contextualized, more fair kind of way than um, the prevailing view. Because a place like that where, you know, poverty has kind of taken the place of prosperity, um, the stories about crime and the stories about dysfunction really start to overtake the, the, the identity of the place as a whole. So people were interested in, in, um, I think the people that I ended up working with responded to someone being interested in them on their terms. So, I mean, you know, I can trace back. I met one guy, I can't even remember. this wonderful guy, John Williams, who was, um, running for city council. And I, um, I kind of understood that he was a new a kind of an up and coming African American politician. There's only been one person of color ever elected to office in that town, even though now it's a majority minority city. So I spent a lot of time with John and through John's wife, I met, she was, she was part Haitian. So I met this whole Haitian community and ended up photographing a wedding and then a baby shower and then would start to see people. And, you know, I have notebooks full of phone numbers and, connections and addresses, or I'd drive by a beautiful garden and I'd say, I wonder who's, you know, who was there and ring the bell. So, you know, layers and layers and layers of, um, I mean, I could go on and on about all the ways of the, you know, that the connections happen and then fall, you know, and then following through on all of those.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So, so it really, it it kind of changed. And then sometimes there would be events like a, um, you know, a political event, say, that was very public or, um, you know, like a young boy was murdered and, and um, the kids, you know, kids, you know, guns and violence and kids dying, all of that is really part of the landscape now. So I knew that that was something I had to address. So um, there was very public kind of sorrowful, I mean, you know, every, as we know, every, every time a child dies, it's sorrowful. In one instance, there was a kid, his parents were immigrants from Haiti. He was an honor student and he'd been shot in an altercation over a video game, something really horrible. Mm. So through, you know, I had read the paper, I was reading the paper and um, got in touch with the funeral home director and went and made my case to him. And he made my case to the family and the family came back through him and said, Yes, we would like for her to um, you know, we'll give her permission to photograph. We understand what she's doing. So so it was all kinds of different ways of of accessing the place.
0: Yeah. Which traces I mean, all that sounds very much you know, tracing back to kind of journalism and the nature of somebody that even if they weren't photographing but they were writing a story, it would be it seems like some of the similar plan of attack in a way, I guess.
1: Well, I feel grateful for those years, um, you know, working at newspapers. Because, I mean, I, I mean, visually now, I, I'm really drawn to. Um, I've tried to educate myself over the last, you know, five or ten years about what's going on in contemporary fine art photography, and I feel really influenced by that stuff visually, mm-hmm. um, and I'm really excited by it. Um, but my roots are definitely in journalism. I'm so grateful for them because. Um, you know, that, that's where you get. You know, that's where you learn. Just how, well, that's where how I've learned to go out into the world as a stranger and somehow, um, you know, receive this great gift of it opening up to me and allowing me to see it. So it's it's been a wonderful. These last few years have been a great um, kind of uh, melding of the two of the two worlds in my in my head. I mean, I, I keep trying to. I want to make pictures that last. But I want to make pictures that really endure as images more so than pictures that are rooted in the news, you know, that are old. They're old right away. And so um, so visually and aesthetically, I feel really grounded in um, contemporary fine art photography. But definitely my feet will always, my roots will always be in, in journalistic practice.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I think that, I mean, it's very in your work i feel like that comes through the balance between the two comes through really well which is a great blend and i think you know it gives your work a unique look and perspective which i think is why it's so successful um, but going so kind of dealing with the the people a little bit one level deeper for me is <laughs> um a lot of them it seems like you once you gain access to people and their lives it's very apparent that you gain a very much, uh, kind of a deep level of trust with them on some level, some way. I mean, you know, either you're, there's some pictures where you're like in their, it looks like you're in their bedroom, uh, or something, which is, you know, in your house, that's your most intimate space, mm. you know? And so when you mm-hmm. let somebody in there, it's always another level of trust. Um, But also even, like, the image of, like, you have uh, this picture of a nurse, and she's Mm. basically naked, except, like, she has her her underwear on, you know, Mm -hmm. on her bottom. But, you know, she's showing you her scars, like her wounds, and so she's very – and that's very intimate. She's very open to you with that. And so I was wondering how how you get people to let down those guards like that.
1: Hmm. I don't – I don't really know – You know, I don't think there's a formula. Mm. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess I can answer this question so many ways. There's a, (laughs) well, there's a certain amount of, um, like, I'm thinking about how I talk to students, you know. Yeah. I think... I mean, it's an interesting question. I guess it would be an interesting question for the people who are in the photographs about why (laughs) did you, you know, why did you say yes to this proposal? I mean, I guess I can only guess. Um, There's a certain power in knowing what you're doing and why. Mm -hmm. And I think um, uh, that there's a certain amount of honesty involved in saying, this is the story i'm trying to tell um this is why and would you like to be a part uh, be a part of it um and so i'm not sure uh, how to describe thank you for saying that and i've always considered that a compliment about the intimacy um
0: I mean, I guess – I mean, maybe if we – you could start with – there's two pictures to me that really stick out in mm-hmm. regards to that. And so maybe you could talk specifically about those situations okay. and see how yeah. that works. So one is obviously the nurse and mm-hmm. how – because asking somebody to get that revealing physically, obviously, is a mm-hmm. kind of – that's a, <laughs> a tough question. I mean, it helps that it's like you're a woman and she's a woman. Mm-hmm. If, it was a, if you were a male asking her to do that, it might not go there, um, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there's also the – the immigrant, I guess, from South Africa and Oh Guinea Bissau with the black with a blanket. With the blanket, yeah. And that's very intimate as well. Even though he's covered. It's like the opposite of the other one, because he's only yeah. sees his face. But there's you're you're so close right. and it looks like you're he's in his bed and it still has that feeling, you know.
1: Okay. So, you know, in both those situations, so I think that there's a certain amount of um one thing that I think I really I've developed over the years is kind of what I started to say before, which is, um, who's going to be, who's, who, where, um, who, who's going to help me make this work out? Who, who's going to help me do my job here? Um, and I think, I think the first, the very first step is kind of d- being self-aware enough to say, am I, am I exploiting people? Am I, do I believe in this mission? Because, because the the act of being photographed, I remember back in the um, olden days, Eugene Richards used to give a workshop at the main up in Maine at the Maine photo workshops. And he, for photographers, and he used to, if you took that class, part of it was, it was a week long thing that you had to photograph one another in the nude And so his point was that you had to experience the deep, deep vulnerability that you're you're putting your subjects through when you're photographing them. So that you as a photographer had to be photographed in the nude by another photographer and really try to embrace that. So, so, I mean, I think that the first step is to really understand how vulnerable these people are. And then the second step is to figure out like, what am I, what am I doing here? Am I trying to make a great picture that, Will, uh, be this kind of kick-ass moment in my portfolio? Am I really trying to tell her story? Is it possible to get your ego completely out of it? Um, is, is, is she going to be safe if this picture goes, goes, so, so I've done a lot over the years, you know, I've kind of done a lot of that, like, okay, what, what's up here? And do I, do I believe in this enough to, to, to ask this person to enter in the, enter in a relationship with me? So having done all that then, like for example, Muriel, the nurse, she she's the aunt of the bride. There were twelve twelve of the pictures from the project became part of this big, huge installation in Brockton. And I was delivering prints to the people who were in the um installation be, I and I needed them to sign extra releases that so anyway, I had gone to see Bougie the bride, and bring her prints and bring her the release. And I ran into her aunt, Muriel, whom I'd met at the wedding. And this whole horrible thing had happened to Muriel where yeah. um, some guy that banged on her door at 3 in the morning, she'd come down the stairs, She they were asking for someone, she her she was in the house with her daughter, she was saying through the door, you've got the wrong house, you've got the wrong house, and they shot her through the doorway and the bullet entered her chest and ricocheted throughout her torso, and she was dying. But the but her daughter was able to call, and the paramedics got there, and they opened her. They did some emergency surgery and opened her up and cleaned her out, and she, you know, and she and she survived. So we were talking about this whole thing, and somehow, I, I this conversation became about about Brockton and about the fact that this lack of safety is a real issue for people. Like it's not some Shangri-La, you know, that, that there, are, there's all this beauty, but there's all this pain. And Muriel had lived through this pain. She, you know, before the paramedics had gone there, she would accepted the fact that she was going to die. She, you know, really deep, deep stuff.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and so I said, Muriel, let's make a picture. Can we make a picture that reflects this? And so I didn't. When she was telling me this story, I didn't say I got to get Muriel real naked on her bed. <laughs> but it, I started a conversation with her about. So how do we make a picture? How how could this happen? And let me see your scar. And so, um, I made an appointment. I went to her house, and she, you know, we're both middle aged women who've had children. And she so she sort of showed me all this, and I said, "Huh? Can I? You want to? Can can we make a picture that shows both scars and?" then her bra was kind of in the way and would you be willing to remove the bra? Like, you know, it's just, it's all so organic. And at any point if she'd said no, it, we would have, we would have stopped. So we ended up, and then so she takes me upstairs to a room and she's got this bag that says Jerusalem, you know, she's a real, um, a church going woman. And so she had said, okay, just don't show my, let's just do it, but don't show my face. Okay. So I make this picture and when the film came back, um, I brought her the scan, you know, I, I brought it to her before I put it on the website or did anything with it. And I loved her mouth and her ear. You know, I, I thought her mouth was so beautiful, her mouth and her chin, and then the line from her chin down to her shoulder. And so she said, oh, but with my mouth and the earring, everybody's going to know it's me. And she she was sort of cropping it on the screen and in my heart, I'm going, oh, please don't crop out the mouth. <laughs> but I have to let, give her that power. Yeah. So then, you know, her 16 her year old daughter comes in and I'm always afraid, like, you know, you think, I mean, I'm shot down a lot, though. You know what I mean? <laughs> so you're seeing the times that it wasn't shut down, but it's right. always like you, you're, you've got it and it's going good and people know what's happening. And then like the husband comes in and shuts the whole thing down and right. you're out. You know, I mean, that happens a lot. But in this case, so her 16 year old daughter was there. And she said, come look at this and see what you think. And I said, oh, I'm saying to myself, oh, no, it's going to be the daughter that's going to shut it down. And the daughter said, Mom, it's fine. Just let her do it. Everyone knows you went through this. Mm-hmm. And Meryl said, okay, it's fine. And then she's like, you want a cup of tea? <laughs> and the whole thing was over. It was done. And I said, okay, you so you realize that this is going to become part of this portfolio of work, blah, blah, blah. Yep. So, I mean, you know, that's another thing I tell my students is that we often – you have to ask if you feel okay about why you're asking the question, you need to ask for permission and let the people say no you know if you're if you're really if you can really get behind your your motive, you can really stand up for your own motive. let people say no, but oftentimes they say yes, you'd be surprised and in the case of the guy under the blanket um I had really spent a long time in these EL- ESL classes and people were very wary to trust me. A lot of them had immigration issues, you know, he's undocumented. And again, that was just this, I mean, a lot of it comes down to personality who likes me, you know, who doesn't like me. Um, in the old days, I made did this project in the North end of Boston with all these old Italian people who I loved. And there was one woman who I loved so much and I photographed her after all the time. And she was in her, the eighties. And we went somewhere and we were, I was photographing her at the, at the, at the market, the fruit market. And the, one of the vendors said, who, why, who is she? Why is she photographing you? And she said, Oh, she's just crazy. Don't, don't bother. <laughs> don't worry about her. So, I mean, sometimes people are like, I don't really know, you know, you're, you know, but I like you, I don't mind having you around. So, I mean, you know, sometimes that, that, you know, and some people don't like you. So anyway, um, in the case of the ESL class, he was a gentleman who I, you know, I, I always was very clear, this is what I'm trying to do. Does anyone want to be part of this project? Give me your phone number. And he came right up and said, yeah, I'd like to be, you know, he, he, we spoke Spanish together. He he spoke Portuguese, but um, Guinea-Bissau was a Portuguese colony, so his um, he spoke Portuguese. But uh, through my little bit of Spanish and his Spanish, we were able to communicate and um and so that picture, I would visit him, you know, I visited him. I got to know his family. I really liked, you know, we liked each other. And he and I said, okay, how are we going to make this picture? Because I'm afraid to identify you completely. And we and we were in his kitchen. And he said, well, maybe if I cover myself with a blanket and we went into his bedroom and there was this blank, you know, this American flag, fleece. So, I mean, you know, you can't plan for some of these miracles that happen. So then, that picture. So he got under that, and again, I showed him the print. He signed off on the he signed off on the image, and um, that picture became so symbolic of to, for me about immigration and this country, and the you know sort of the promise of the flag, and yet also for some people the 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 disappointment of the flag. Is it a cheap fleece blanket, or is it really <laughs> something that promises um, some kind of fair representation. And, and that, that picture was one of the big, one of the big billboards in Brockton. And he knew all about that. And, you know, and it was, it was too bad because he couldn't come, he couldn't come to the festivities. He, I mean, you know, although he wasn't, that he wasn't afraid of being, you know, hauled off by, by <laughs> immigration. Point, yeah. But so in each case, it was, it's in each case, it's its own negotiation. I hope I'm not talking too long, am
0: I? No, this is fantastic. Okay, Um, good. The one kind of just question that – this is a bit bit of a tangent question, but it's a generic question to being a photographer. But I guess it's in a bit of relation to having a long-term project such as this and being dedicated to something like this and what you have to go through, how much time you have to invest to Mm – produce a body of work uh that you've you know like like you've done is i'm not even trying to think of how to phrase this it it's something to do with like living a photographic life which you touched on really early on Mm -hmm. um basically enjoying it's the the photographer for you is maybe it's more about your experiences of doing it rather than the, the final images does that make sense like is photographer for you like do you get more enjoyment out of meeting the people getting to know the families getting knowing their stories and if you get a great image it's kind of a bonus ver- kind of a thing cuz i know a lot of photographers everything is about the image the final image and we they skip over they skip over the the meeting mm. the people and spending the time and you know willing to give somebody your entire day maybe just to make one image and it may not turn out you know so you have to have some sort of enjoyment of mm-hmm. of that versus just trying to look for the quick image. Does mm. that make sense?
1: Mm. Well, I would say for me, um, uh, I wouldn't say um, – it, well, it's both, for me, it's both about the process and the experiences and about the crafting of the image. So it never feels quick to me. It always feels um, – it always feels hard. I mean, it doesn't, let me see, it doesn't always feel hard, but it always, it definitely always feels like a major investment. Yeah. Um, so quick, it's never quick, really. Psychically, it's never quick. Maybe, you know what I mean? Like maybe, mm-hmm. maybe I'm in a situation where pictures are happening with frequency, but there's always a lot of weight behind it or going into it or, but No, I, I, you know, it's interesting because I've spent the last year really producing this project and in this kind of um, office mode, uh, uh, you know, exhibition mode, Mm -hmm. making prints, preparing, you know, doing the installation, publicize, you know, trying to having trying to get people there and doing all that, and I notice that I miss the process of of not only the visual process of photographing, but just of um, immersing myself in a place that's new, um, but that's right under my nose, you know, that's right in my own community. So I definitely, as a person, get something out of going very deep in places to try to rethink them, recontextualize them, revisualize them, to try to add something to the conversation about about what's happening in our communities, but also to try to understand them for myself. Um, It's one of the few times in my life where I'm really completely outside of myself. That immersion of being in that gentleman's house with his whole family around, and they've invited me for dinner, and I'm sitting there, and the food's getting passed around, and and I'm kind of looking for pictures, but I'm also talking to people, and I'm trying to be aware and um, trying to understand what this means, that this West African family's in this this run-down, triple-decker in the middle of a neighborhood that I've only ever known as being a drug-infested neighborhood, but now I'm seeing all this life here, and how do I make sense of that? Like, it's thrilling, you know, it's really deep. To me, it's deeply engaging, yeah. which is why it's the sort of the, the way I've chosen to live my life, and, you know, I'm not an economist, I'm not a social worker, there could have been other ways to enter into the world, but I've chosen to do it as, an, as a photographer, so that is deeply gratifying to me and actually something that I miss and I want I need to start a new um project even if I'm not quite sure what it is yet just to sort of get back out there in the world. But the crafting of the image is a big deal too and um finding those pictures in the edit um figuring out how they work together you know producing them as prints producing them on the um, as scans and 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 looking at them now now it's a whole this is now a whole different two-dimensional reality that's completely separate from being at some big fish dinner in in this West African family's house but now it's about what's resonating in each image and where is it really working and what are the layers of meaning that happen when pictures are put together and what are new narratives that kind of bubble up that that I didn't even think of when I was there making the image, you know, that when I'm there making the image, it's about figuring out in my gut, where's the picture going to happen and what's the composition and how do I arrange myself? I don't ever arrange tableaus. I never ask people to move. I mean, unless it's really a portrait where someone's clearly standing in front of me, then that signals in my work, that signals that that is a bit has been a bit of a collaboration, but if it's a candid quote unquote, candid moment, um, I consider it my job to arrange myself in a way that captures that, and that's my old school kind of journalism training too like i'm not directing anything um so then but so then, after that work is done, and we I've figured out what are the pictures that are working on all of the visual levels, then how do the new narratives kind of get layered onto that, and how do these pictures become symbolic for ideas that um I didn't even think about in the, in the shooting. So that's a fascinating process two And one I've really enjoyed. And, um, so I would say that it's both my least favorite part of the whole process is then what happened after that, when you have to get it out there and find <laughs> who is its audience and writing grants. And I mean, you know, there's richness in that too, but that feels more like a job. That feels more like work.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, one thing that's also obviously we need to talk about that's really unique to your project um, is the way you exhibited them, at least so mm-hmm. far. So I want to know why you decided to put the photos up in the town on the buildings.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, there – that. Greek coffee shop I mentioned earlier. I was at that shop, coffee shop with a woman, um, a woman named Jill Wiley, who was the head of the Brockton Cultural Council in those days. Massachusetts has a wonderful statewide Massachusetts Cultural Council, and then there are all these local cultural councils in the towns. And Brockton has one. And I had hooked up with her, and we were having coffee, and we were talking about the way perception of crime and perceptions about poverty, perceptions about race really took over the identity of the entire place and how um, how we can't really, we don't, as a society, we don't really know what to deal with poverty. We don't really know how to deal with, you know, a place gets labeled as a dump, you know, don't drive through Brockton, you'll get hit with a bullet. Well, what are the ramifications for the small business owners who are trying to make it on Main Street. What are the ramifications for the children who graduate from there and try to go out in the world and hold their head up? So so the place struggles with what it knows is its outside perception. I mean, you go to City Hall, you go to the Brockton High Graduation, the principals are always saying, we know what people will think of you when you say you're from Brockton, but we're going to hold our head up high. And and that became a real kind of... um, kind of drumbeat for me in the back of my mind, like, what does that mean to, to, to be from a, to, to, to sort of be damned before you can even introduce yourself? You're really, you know, it's really about invisibility. So, um, and, you know, and I, I spoke with an editor at the Boston Globe about this project and she said, you know, we really, she even said, we really do places like that a disservice because we only go there to report on the crime and dysfunction. Yeah. So it's hard to tease out well, how much crime is there really? And and how much is it um, an overblown perception? Okay. So anyway, so we're sitting there at this coffee shop and there was an um, there was an empty supermarket that had been empty for years right in the heart of the downtown and the windows were boarded up. And I started to think about what if we forced people to interact with the downtown as a character? I mean, at that point, it was really like, um, it was, it's really like social justice advocacy at that point. It was really like, I'm so angry about how places become misidentified and then those, and then those identities stick. So at that point, Showing the work in a gallery, which is valuable and wonderful, and I'm so grateful to the people who are showing the work now, Um, but showing a work in kind of a a place that was removed, that was only accessible to sort of art goers, you Mm -hmm. know, art wasn't as interesting to me. It it was more interesting to me to drag people to the place and really force them to interact with it. And, And so to interact with the downtown, interact with the place itself as a character, as they're trying to visualize these human beings. So we were looking at this old supermarket and there were the boarded up windows. And I said, Oh my God, look at that. Those are like picture frames. What if we covered that? What if we covered that supermarket in photographs and invited and, and that was our, you know, that was my, my exhibition. So Jill and I worked for a long time to try to get permission to cover that um, supermarket and photographs and we couldn't get, we couldn't. The owners wouldn't give us. It didn't go anywhere. But the mayor said something like, "Well, what if you do it in City Hall Plaza?" And she thought that I was just going to do, you know, some pictures in an installation right outside the doorway. But then once I started thinking about City Hall, I started thinking about the buildings. Yeah. How many of them were empty because of the economic decline? Like the only way we could, you know, we covered up windows with photographs because those offices were empty. So then I, you know, and I looked at the work of Andy, Wendy Ewald had done Banner, Pro, uh, Banner Project in Virginia and, of course, J.R. And then so I started looking at other photographers that had used spaces, um, public spaces as a way of, um, of exhi- exhibiting their work. And so then the whole thing just came together, that this downtown corridor, which had once been a thriving, beautiful American graffiti kind of place, which was now so depressed, but with these little pockets of of effort and hope of new businesses trying so hard to 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 make it. So to force viewers to come downtown, consider the people in this larger than life scale at the same time that they're physically in the landscape and in kind of a, the symbolic heart of the place. Um, it just all came together as an idea and became clear that that's what I wanted to do. So so that's how. That's how that installation, that's how that installation happened.
0: And then you, I would love for you to talk about the reactions of of the people that were photographed themselves seeing themselves up on the buildings. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you have pictures on your website of, you know, people, they're smiling and they seem to be really excited about seeing their image up on the side of a building. And Mm -hmm. so i just love you to talk about what that meant for you, what it meant for them and, and that whole experience.
1: Well, that was really a wonderful experience, but not all of the, I mean, it was, but it was complicated too. So for example, right. So there's a man, um, you know, the picture of Luigi, So Muriel's niece, the, the bride um, is next to a picture of a man working in a factory um, named Peter de Grasa. And he's, he an old elderly gentleman. He didn't speak any English. He'd been in this country, big, huge Cape Verdean community in Brockton. And so um, when he saw, we had a a reception for the people in the pictures and some community people on the Friday night before the inaugural walking tour. He did a series of public walking tours on a Saturday. So on the Friday night, the people came and saw them for the first time and when he when he saw his he really he really was pleased and um he spoke to his daughter in Portuguese, and his daughter said to me um he never thought he never thought he'd receive any honor like this in this country mm-hmm. so I mean that meant a lot to me that he felt seen you know more and more i'm I'm realizing that um my work really is about addressing a certain kind of invisibility and that that really is kind of a driving force behind how I choose projects and where I choose to go next. And so that meant, you know, that meant a lot. Um, On the other hand, the the young girl named Nancy D'Souza, who's on a picture, who was on a picture on the Baptist church. She, she and I met and I made her portrait. She's wearing a bandana. She's got this little midriff. You know, midi kind of shirt with a bare midriff and kind of low slung jeans, and she's got cigars tucked into her waistband. Mm -hmm. And that picture became kind of a lightning rod when it went up, immediately when it went up, because, you know, it raised all kinds of questions like, well, where's she going with those cigars? You know, was she going to turn them into blunts? You know how they hollow out the cigars and fill them with pot and turn them into blunts? And so this picture. Just set up a rocket storm of of conversation, which ended up being amazingly fruitful conversation. But um, it was interesting because we made the, we made the picture. Um, I went back and saw her a number of times after the picture, and we t- and we talked. And she had a print. She knew what the picture looked like. And two days before the picture was going to go up, like literally, the thing's been printed. The whole thing is done. It's like on Wednesday, yeah. the thing opens on Friday she called me and said, "Um, I still want to be part of your project, but can we reshoot the picture? (laughs) And I said, Nancy, oh my God, what do you mean? And she said, well, I'm afraid that they're going to think I'm in a gang because I'm wearing that black bandana. That's what, that's what she was afraid of. And I said, well, well, are you in a gang? And she said, well, no, I'm not in a gang. And I said, well, okay, well then um, what can we do? You know, I sort of talked her through it and she said, well, People, people are going to judge you for your, people are going to judge you, you know, people judge a book by its cover. And she so so she started grappling with this whole thing about, um, how she had presented herself that day and what that would mean. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, if she had really not wanted that banner to go up, we would have not put it up, but she sort of thought it through and said, well, let them think what they want to think. And, um, and she and 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 so she struggled she struggled a little bit and she I, I mean i think it's it hasn't been it wasn't easy it wasn't easy for her i mean i know that she didn't regret being part of the project but i think it raised a lot of questions so it raised a lot of questions for her personally but then it set off a firestorm in the town about you know was I glamorizing drugs. I mean, we had to have we had a public forum about that picture the preacher at the church wow. gave <laughs> sermons about that picture, you know, how do we judge people and I mean, my I still maintain that we you know, we could take the picture down and and incinerate it, but that girl is on every corner and you know that that girl who f- seems foreboding but maybe is really vulnerable or maybe really longing for connection or just at least is longing to be seen as a human being. I don't know if she's longing, but deserves to be seen as a human being, regardless of whether she's got a cigar tucked into her waistband. So that picture was really, the conversation about that picture was like, oh my God, how we are so willing. We'd rather not see that girl. We'd rather not look at her. We'd rather it be easy, but she exists. And so what does that mean? That even just in the looking, the emotions that get brought up or the assumptions that get brought up in the looking, um, are so painful or so unpleasant that it would be better just not to see it. And what are the ramifications for all the girls who look like that in the town? And, and and does that at all speak to why the place is so fractured? Why City Hall, why does City Hall seem so disconnected from the majority of the population? Is it because of the assumptions we bring to to this kind of, to the image of, of the other or the image of um, who we don't want to be, you know, do we, can we not? And so, so the forum that we held at the church was, they named, they titled it who belongs, who belongs where. Mm -hmm. And, and how do you, I mean, I found out recently, very recently that a majority, I don't know about a majority, but a large number of people in city hall won't even walk the downtown. They won't, they drive to the, they will drive to the parking garage, get out of the parking garage, walk across the, the the um courtyard and then get back into their cars and drive home these are the people running the town and so th- so they're not interacting with these business owners they're not interacting with the people who are actually in that in that central space why so what is the perception that's behind this fracturing so now i'm interested in that like now i'd like to make work or figure out a way to make work that really directly addresses this um, creation of other and this invisibility and our refusal to really see one another as human beings. I mean, it was unbelievable—the the fights that went on over this picture. <laughs> so it wasn't all. I mean, I'm glad Mr. Yeah. DeGrasso was happy, and I think people were honored to be up there. But it was—it raised some stuff that I think in the end was very, very rich um, and fertile. But it wasn't easy for people. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't even showing the worst of Brock I mean, Michael, I could have really made a set of <laughs> pictures that showed you I'm sure. Real, you know? Yeah. So,
0: um I would think for me, it feels like that is when if you can make photographs that start conversations, you know, that that have so much power in them or so, you know, they communicate a message effectively that you can get people talking about something passionately. Uh I don't feel like there's a, a higher honor of a photograph than that, you know? Um,
1: oh, I'm glad.
0: Because, I don't know. I mean, for me, photography is, that's the point of creating something like that, is to share a message or to get to talk about something. And um, there's too many photographs in the world now, or images that are void of any sort of conversation, like conversation starting ability or whatever you want to say that. But um, hmm. So that's good. I mean, um, you know... It's hopefully I can make an image someday. (laughs) People have forums over about it. (laughs) People what? That people will have a forum about it. A forum.
1: (laughs) Well, um, it's hard to quantify. (laughs) It's hard to know what the net effect, you know, I mean, it's hard to say, you know, people talk a lot about photography and social change. Well, who knows what actually gets changed or if it's just even on a molecular level, you know, but, um, but I can say there were a lot of conversations. That's for sure. I mean, whatever whatever came of that, it's hard to know.
0: Um, I, I kind of as we wrap up here, um, I see on your website that you you teach at like a bilingual school. Like you teach kids photography. Is this mm-hmm. correct? Correct. Um, kind of a flip question is. I know that people always say like you know when you when you're a teacher you you tend to learn more than your students or something like that, you know to that effect, I guess
1: you mean you learn more from them, you learn more from them,
0: yeah, possibly, or just because you're studying the subject so in depth you have to teach somebody that you you tend to learn a lot about, oh it, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. so I think it goes mm-hmm. both both ways, but the fact that you're teaching kids, I was curious what they have taught you because a lot of photo teachers I know they're, you know, they're teaching college age people or Mm -hmm. older or high school kids, but they're not teaching like younger generation. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in what you learned from them, like what they've taught you.
1: Hmm. Well, it's interesting because I teach simultaneously. I teach at the college level. Uh, You know, I teach a class, uh, I teach a mass art and then I teach these eight year olds and, um, in terms of the eighth, it's a third grade. It's a third grade project. Um, I'm not sure what they've taught me about photography
2: yeah.
1: per se, but you'd be amazed. I think what I've learned from those kids is how um, how eager they are to meet a really rigorous standard that's been set for them. Mm. So, I mean, I talk to them about, um, I've sort of boiled it down. I mean, it's hard to figure out how to boil it down for an eight-year-old, but we talk about framing. Like, I have this equation that I put up on the board after, after we talk a lot about the frame, you know, framing plus moment. So what you put in your box and what you leave out of your box, that's your first decision. What's going in here? What's staying out? What's the moment that you're going to push your button? There's your moment equals your story so we do a lot of decoding of images like I show them I show them Robert Frank and Leonard Freed and I show them um, you know Dorothea Lange and I show them lots of contemporary work in the beginning and say what's the story here and what are you seeing and how do you know that what's inside the frame what's outside the frame and when was the button pushed and they get they get it so after a couple of weeks of really looking at other photography they get that and then they go out and they and they do it, and then they are able to critique each other's work and say, well, it, it's really funny because then you've got the little eight-year-old guy going, no, no, the framing would have been much better if you, you know. And we go through this process of they cut out, you know, I give them a cutout of a frame, they have to use their scissors and they open it up, and oh my god, now it's a frame. And we walk around the school and they practice. What if you want the story to just be about that? What if you want to include? And they become, they take ownership of this process and then they start doing it on their own. And then it's, it is really funny for them to critique, oh, oh I don't see any story here, you know, or, or you should have moved to the left or why is this head here? And they, so what I've learned about them is less about photography and more about, you know, whatever bar you set for kids, they're going to meet it. So they want to meet. it? they they enjoy they enjoy meeting it. And I show those pictures to my students at Mass Art, and it kind of freaks them out because the <laughs> pictures are amazing. Wow. So um, and they're funny and they're really fun. So so I guess um, that's what I get out of being with them is just their company and their funny their funny little eight year old selves and what they see, what they want to tell. Just how rich every little person is if you give them a camera what they want to tell you is so deep you know yeah so there's a lot of joy in 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 um you know giving them the tools and setting the standard high and making it fun and then seeing what they can do you know i've had a lot of kids come out and want to be photographers and their parents have gotten them cameras for christmas and they want to start a photo club and so there's a lot beneath the surface and a lot of these kids are it's a bilingual charter school a lot of these kids are recent immigrants you know they're a lot of them are this, you know, my friend's kids and a lot of them are kids who've just gotten here. The parents don't speak English, but the richness is universal. I mean, it doesn't matter what the socioeconomic or any, or the ethnic origin of is of the kid, the richness is always there. So,
0: yeah. Um, okay. One last question, yeah. <laughs> just because that popped up as, as long as you have time.
1: I uh, have time. I'm worried. I'm talking too much.
0: Okay. No, no, you're good. Um, I have a book, like a collection of, of writings from Ad Coleman, the photo critic. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've followed him at all, but not um, really. Uh, he, he, I'm trying to think. Of, he was a photo critic for in New York. Uh, he's still writing and stuff about photography, but he has this book called Light Readings, and it's a lot of uh, mm-hmm. his opinion cri- photo critic pieces that he's written in the newspaper, and a lot of them are for like the 70s m- mainly. Um, and it's just, you collected them all basically in a book. Um, and so one of the, I remember through the book, one of the things that really stuck out to me was his assessment of like our, of our culture and how it's going to being a visual culture. And this is stuff he's talking about like early seventies and everything. Uh, and he proposed that students, like people should be learning photography or about images. Um, it's so important that it should be. Equal in importance to like math, science, all that kind of stuff in terms of um, being taught at like first grade on almost. And he, mm-hmm. he was specifically talking about photography in a lot of ways because he knew <laughs> the, the images which kind of shape our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we see that even on on, on like subconscious levels. Mm-hmm. So I was curious because I haven't got to really talk to anybody that teaches kids at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, if if that's something that you feel like would would really be a benefit in our culture of having some sort of photo education starting in elementary school and being kind of a standard that went all the way through high school.
1: Well, of course, I mean I think that would be fantastic for any for any medium, you know. But for you know, music, um, any kind of fine art—I mean, any of that stuff—is a benefit to kids and is you know and is always being scaled back with budgets and the rest. But in terms of um I mean I think that making the kids that I'm working with I'm really um the 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 curriculum that I'm working within and, and my kind of goals for them are are for them to be able to see their own lives um at once critically and also appreciatively. Mm-hmm. So that they now um You know, these tamales that my grandmother makes every Sunday that is just part of the woodwork for me is now something monumentalized in photographs. It's now something that, you know, part of the... We do three exhibitions a year, and those exhibitions are part of the culture of the school now where the next group waits to see what the next exhibition is going to be. When do I get a chance to do um, do my photography and have my exhibition? So I think that the visual culture... An education in visual culture um, allows the kids a lot of things. One is to be able to be critical about the imagery that's around them. I mean, in terms of advertising or news or all the stuff that we're inundated with, Mm -hmm. um, that they know that that image has been crafted by someone who's trying to tell them a story. And they, I think, have the first steps of being critical about what is being sold to them. Um, And secondly, I think that becoming a I mean, you know what happens when you start to become a photographer, you start to see things that you never noticed before. So it's about um kind of a deep looking and a deep seeing and um, you know, I think when they take that camera and have to go into their homes and have to really tease out what the what the meaning is of what they're seeing and the moments and their parents' interaction and I mean I think it gives them a richer sort of awareness of the world around them. So, I mean, as third graders, they're learning about family and neighborhood. But as I mean, think about you and I as practitioners, how much richer our experience with the world is having had to photograph it or having had to make sense of it visually. So. So, I mean, I don't think there's anything more valuable than having to meet, because otherwise what's mediating your, if, it, I mean, p- the main reason why I went to Brockton and started photographing was because I didn't know what had happened. I knew how people felt about it, but I didn't know on my own, ter- own terms what, what really it was until I entered in as a photographer. So that camera gave me license to discover for myself. Had I not done that or had I been of a different mindset, I could have just happily gone off with my preconceptions never having tested them. And I mean, I think a lot of people that's how life is lived through a series of assumptions that don't ever really get tested. So, I mean, it's part of the way of bringing the, bringing the world home and having to really wrestle with it.
2: Yeah.
0: Great. Great thoughts. Wow. Um, (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're slammed and busy and, that it's time of a year pleasure. as well but it was great to talk to you um and so i i feel really inspired so i know a lot of other people will feel inspired. oh Michael. and well, uh,
1: thank you yeah thank you for your very very thoughtful questions and for your you know attention to the work it's always an honor when your work speaks to somebody so i really appreciate what you're doing there too with the podcast and um you know i'm grateful to you for reaching out to me so this has been really fun for me too
0: awesome well thank you thank you um